something exciting. Um, it was developed kind of quickly and now it's here quickly. It's, it's a it's gonna be a 16-week look at um, the Sermon on the Mount which is Matthew 5 through 7. So we'll start looking today at the first 12 verses. If you'd like to turn to Matthew now, Matthew 5. And uh, these first 12 verses are known as the Beatitudes. I have a little summary of them up in the top right, but you'll see them there in your Bible. Not really a need for a handout today, it's right in front of you uh, in these verses. Uh, Beatitude, it comes from old French and Latin language, and it means supreme blessedness, or supreme blessedness, but we seem to say blessed. Um, So before we get to the blessings, I just want to do a quick recap, instead of just like if Matthew is a rushing river, instead of just jumping right in. A quick recap of what's going on in Matthew. If you look through Matthew, at the beginning it starts with Christ's genealogy. And this is giving proof to the Jews that were this book was written for, uh, that Jesus came from the line of David, that he was truly the king of the Jews, as well as now the Messiah, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. That's a big deal for the Jews to read that, and it's a big deal for us to read it. We then read about his miraculous birth, which we could talk about a ton, um, but it's pretty complicated, uh, pretty mysterious as well. It's miraculous, but it proves that Christ was not a created being. He was fully God, and he was fully man, and that's a huge deal for his ministry. And then he's immediately threatened by the evil king of the time. It's kind of this, even his birth becomes kind of this battle of kings. Immediately, Herod's like, I don't like this guy. I think I need to kill this this baby. What a nice guy. Uh, but he escapes and goes to all these different places and ends up proving a handful of prophecies that were made concerning his birth in the Old Testament, which is amazing as well. But even as a child, his kingship was a threat and the wise men show up, right? When he, Jesus was a child, and they give him the gifts that a king would get. So we're seeing his kingship just established, established, established. They also give him myrrh, which is very interesting. Kind of a, a proclamation proclamation of something that would happen later. Yeah, foreshadowing, thank you. Nice of you. Uh, so Jesus grows up, kind of flies past that. There's a little a bit of a count of that in Luke, I think. But John the Baptist starts stirring up the people. And he starts, he's, he's a steward of Christ before he comes. He's warning that Christ is coming, the Messiah that they've been waiting for is coming, and that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit for believers and fire for those who reject him. And then Christ is then baptized. It's interesting, when he's baptized, it's himself, the Holy Spirit descends, and the Father is there, it's the whole Trinity is there. They're all present for the start of his ministry. So this king just got baptized, which is kind of weird that a king would, um, that God himself would be baptized, but he is. And then the first thing he does, which is great for us, is the all-powerful king then immediately goes toe-to-toe with Satan uh, in the wilderness and defeats him while both fasting like a man, quoting scripture like a man that he clearly had studied and loved all of his life. And after proving his power as a perfect man over Satan, the first Adam, or the last Adam, the Adam that's able to defeat him, um, he calls on his disciples to follow him and become fishers of men. And then Matthew gives us a glimpse of the way Christ was expressing his kingship in our world, uh, very different than some of the kings that we've heard of. If you want to turn back a page or so, uh, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, It says, this is a little glimpse Matthew gives us before. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those opposed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we see here this incredible glimpse of what Christ was doing at the beginning of his ministry. Um, It's an amazing picture of a king, somebody who comes in and just starts saving the world in every way. Um, But now in chapter 5 through 7, we will see that what Christ was teaching at that time. So understand, this is the, it's been called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Augustine who first called it the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. But this is in, this is Matthew's record of what Christ was teaching. It seems pretty clear that Christ probably didn't just teach a sermon for 10 to 15 minutes, the amount of time it takes to read these chapters. It was probably much longer and much more detailed, but this is the record that we've been given. It's totally inerrant. It's totally perfect. Um, And also keep in mind that this wasn't the only time. (laughs) This is something that I didn't realize growing up just because you miss things. But this this wasn't the only time he was teaching this sermon. This isn't like the sermon of all sermons. It's like he was walking around teaching the sermon again and again. He was walking around with his disciples, he was walking around with other men and women that had left their previous lives and they were following him around listening. It's like, like a band groupies just listen. I could just love this. I just got to hear it again. Got to see the show again. Um, they were following him around, supporting him financially as well, uh, men and women. In other words, training his apprentices. Right, right. Um, and although it would have been quite a thing to be there and see him teach. And we should kind of try to put ourselves in that position this morning to see him teach these truths. We do have a good idea of his kind of demeanor um, that he had when he taught these next two chapters. It says in verse 1 that he sat down with his disciples right in front of him, and the crowds uh, were kind of behind him. That's kind of where we are right now. We're were the disciples sitting before this text, listening to him intently with the world behind us, who has heard this, hopefully, as well. And... Verse 9 of what? What? Chapter of her book. We are doing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Thanks. So... He's in this sitting position, and so he's sitting down. I, I saw like a, a depiction of this. I don't know if you remember this old. They made this Matthew movie back in the day. It had the verse in the bottom. He's like walking around. Listen up. It's like, no, he's, uh, he's not doing that. Um, he's sitting down in the normal posture that any rabbi at the time would have done, um, which I think is kind of like a contextualization. There's no gimmicks. There's no fancy presentations. And I think that can be a good sign. If you see a bunch of gimmicks and fancy presentations, you're probably not seeing a lot of Christ going on. But so he taught the exact same way their teachers taught, except the truths that he was teaching were not the teachings that they had been hearing. Um, And another part of his demeanor that I think we can see in chapter 9, verse 36, it's a little bit later, is when, when, because we get that glimpse of what Jesus did, and then later in Matthew, he like digs in to more detail of what he did. And uh, in Matthew 9, verse 36, it says that Jesus looks on the crowds and has compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he sat like a teacher and he taught with like this sacrificially loving compassion, which again, I think is pretty different than what we're used to. If you had somebody coming and teaching you this amazing truth, they'd pro- what we're used to is they'd come up and be like, let me convince you with my, my learned speech, my flamboyant vocabulary. But no, he's just, no, he just had compassion. He calls us to do this later in the Bible, just have compassion for people. It will slice through all the fat and all the garbage. Um, he had compassion because they were lost. He remembers that, and 
So even before he speaks, just his demeanor, how he contextualizes himself, he sits down like the other rabbis, he doesn't try to make himself any bigger, he humbled himself to be a man in the first place. And then he looks on them with compassion, not with like, these people, ugh, just have to get them right, get them where they need to be. He looks on them with his heart, just his demeanors, a ton for us to take away. <laughs> like, are we doing that on a constant basis? Are we trying to contextualize? Are we trying to be as compassionate as possible? If not, we need to pray that we do, and that we look to Christ as our example. So, I want to look at the kind of what's going on at the time. Why, are, why were these people lost? What were the people doing at this time? Of course, the, the answer is sin, but looking at the social context of the time, I was listening to a sermon by MacArthur, and he gave a really good, just really easy way to remember what the people at the time were doing. It's just these four groups of people that I hear all the time, and sometimes I get kind of confused <laughs> as to what they're doing. So we've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Pharisees, this is kind of how he was talking about it, a way to remember it. The Pharisees of the time, when it comes to the respect of the teachings and what they're supposed to be doing as followers of God, they're going back. They're going back to what the text said, they're misunderstanding it, and they're adding to it. They're legalistic and they're going back. The Sadducees are going forward. They're the progressives the liberals of the time. They're moving forward and they're taking away from the word of God. It sounds really, very familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like things haven't changed that much. The Essenes are kind of like the pacifists, isolationists. They're, they're leaving. There's like, this Roman rule is dumb. We're just going to leave and go be monks somewhere. They're going out. Not in the way of a great commission. They're going out as like, I'm out. I don't want to deal with this. This is stupid. I hate this. I'm leaving. I'm going to go be a monk. Which still happens today. There's a lot of people like, the only way to really be spiritual is to just escape all. Escape all people. Escape Burger Kings and fast food stations. No, it's, they're just abandoning all their responsibilities. And then the Zealots, we definitely see it today. Um, they're going against. These are the kind of people that would walk up to a Roman soldier on the street in the name of God, slit his throat, walk away. Um, definitely not pacifist, violent. And they're not leaving, they're trying to start revolutions, trying to go against um, God's sovereignty in a violent and sinful way. Well, well, what? A little different view on some of this. The Pharisees were more or less the traditionalists. Right. Uh, the Sadducees, like you said, going forward or being pagans, more or less. Right, getting away from it. The easy way to remember them is they were sad, you see, because there's no divine or anything. Yeah, good point. <laughs> the Essenes, like the monks. Right. And your zealots were looking for an immediate kingdom to come in. Hey, let's get with the work. Uh, Jesus, he's going to be king and rule right now. In other words, they were looking for the second coming now. Yeah. And so you got all these, you got these four groups and you understand why the people were pretty lost. These are the four groups. And these people are in pretty, they're very powerful. Like you said, they're, the Pharisees are traditionalists. And their traditions are very important to them. And they're, you know... They're selfishly adding sin into that tradition. And then you got the Sadducees who have, from what I think I remember, are pretty rich. And they're kind of controlling the way that everything's going and it's not working out. And the people who are looking for sound teaching are pretty lost. These movements of the, yeah, what's up? Okay, sorry, can I just ask a question for clarification? So are you saying like in the crowd that day, this might've been a sampling of no, this is what's going on in their culture. Okay. You know, it's just like us now. I mean, you saw the way that the votes looked as this was happening. It looked very divided. <laughs> Maybe since I'm, good job, buddy. Uh, <laughs> uh, now you see it. It's like 
there's people walking around who don't know Jesus that are like, what is going on in my country? I don't understand. And this is, I mean, four groups. You got people killing people on the street. I guess. These are all Jewish, right? Right, all Jewish. This is in the Jewish context. So, but the crowds there were had a lot of this going on in their mind. Um, and, sorry, Harry has a question. Sure. I'm not sure. I mean, not as much as the Pharisees and Sadducees. <laughs> They're not controlling, you know. Minority, well, in the Zealot's case, yeah. minority resistance, and then yeah. the minority Yeah. Because the Pharisees, right, the Pharisees and... They would not have been the Republican and Democrats. They would have been the Right. Right. They're kind of t- sort of teaming up with the Romans a little bit. They're in a relation with them. And wow. the Essenes are like, no. And the Zealots are like, dude, it's time to kill people. Uh, but moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on. Um, so these were the movements of the time. And Christ comes in with something else, uh, something that's antithetical to these methods, to the world's movements even today. Um, and even today, we have people adding to the Bible, we have people taking away from the Bible, we have people relishing in God's blessings without obeying the Great Commission or obeying Him. And we have people being combative and hateful instead of loving and compassionate. Westboro. Um, Jesus came in and He introduced the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. As we know now that He is the king of that kingdom, and he was teaching the people how to live like citizens of his kingdom. So that's what we're, we're really looking at with the Beatitudes uh, today. We want to see that we're called to be like Christ. We're called to be image bearers as we pursue living out the kingdom of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska, and the surrounding area. We're called to live differently. It's kind of like the Jews at the time. We're called to live differently than the nations around us. And in living differently we will know that true blessing comes from submission to and dependence on God who will reward us. It's crazy. He rewards us as we become more like our king. So with all that said, now let's look at these Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Somebody please read the first four verses. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up upon the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Somebody read the last four. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so this word blessed is used nine times for what some people call eight different callings. Because the last two, you can see, they're kind of combined. They're kind of both talking about persecution. Um, and it's a Greek word. It's markarios. Take this with you, markarios. It's mark. I, I know you usually ask me to spell things. Mark and then A-R-I-O-S, markarios. It's a prolonged form of the poetical Greek word makar, which means blessed, it means happy, it means fortunate, blissful. This is a a deep happiness. It's a divinely bestowed well-being only for the faithful. This is an eternally joyful inner disposition. You know, that thing that everyone in the world is searching for. (laughs) It's right here. Uh, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Uh, it's the right that our Constitution talks about, the pursuit of happiness that seems to be so difficult to find, and we keep swapping ideas of like, oh, I think I know how to do that. No, it's, it's here in Matthew 5. 
And uh, something that I notice in looking at these blessings that every Christian, every citizen of God's kingdom should be following all of these blessings, all eight or nine of them. But, I mean, remember that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching us how to be in his kingdom, which is, I mean, at this current point, politically, it's extremely important, more important than it ever was. Um, But I'll say that the first two blessings, to be poor in spirit and to mourn, they're practices that are present as Christians in the kingdom for sure, but they're also things that happen sort of in or before, it's a little foggy, but in or before non-Christians when Christ is working in their justification. Speaking of first ones, poor in spirit, what does... What's up? Poor in spirit. Exactly. What is that? Oh, I'll get to it. <laughs> he's, he's getting there, Henry. Do I, have your permi- can, do I have your permission to get to that? I'll get to it in a moment. Well, number three there. Verse three. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to it, Henry. Oh, how would you define that? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to it. Got time. He's, he's oh. going okay. Oh. <laughs> so, I also noticed these kind of bookends. Um, I don't know, I notice them. I could be wrong, I guess. But I feel like you, you look at the first one, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And later in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And both are followed by the blessing of, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think this kind of mirrors, there's a lot of language throughout the Bible. It talks about how, you know, we come to God broken, begging for mercy, repenting and believing. Um, eventually being baptized. This is all happening at the beginning of our salvation. And, but there's a lot of verses in the Bible, too, that talk about enduring temptation, persecution, and other trials, finishing the race, keeping the faith, as Paul says of himself in 2 Timothy 4.7. So our obedience and submission are both at the beginning and at the end of our time here on this side of eternity. And it goes into eternity. It's not, it's not a set it and forget it situation. That's what I'm getting at. I feel like there's kind of some bookends here. It's not a set it and forget it situation. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes. Every one of these is a daily practice and these blessings are consistent. They keep coming. Um, just like God isn't a set it and forget it God, like some people believe, we as we bear his image, we are not set it and forget it type of people. Um, these need to be practices. So, like you're saying, Henry, to be poor in spirit, it means it can be confusing to look at, especially the first two. The first two are like, poor in spirit, what does that mean? Just abandon everything? Um, or mourn, to mourn. Was it just be emo? Like, be goth? I don't know. <laughs> are the goth going to inherit the earth? Uh, no, uh, to be poor in spirit, it means to come to the humble understanding that you are, this is the term a lot of people use, spiritually bankrupt. You've got nothing. Uh, the, your, your self-sufficiency, this, this thing, this, this human spirit, um, it's a failure. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And that you are indeed lost and hopeless without the merciful grace of God. This is you in posture and position with God. With God, no, nothing. No spirit. Um, You know all those great movies and all those novels and the pop songs we hear that promote the beauty and the power of human spirit. Uh, That's not going to work. You are poor. And considering these four types of movements, how, what we were talking about, how these four movements are kind of working at the time and kind of influencing the culture. A question for the group. Why do you guys think Christ opens his teachings with this specific blessing, this attitude about being poor in spirit. Because there were sinners that were confused, especially among uh, those leaders, and was assuring them that it's okay to feel that way about themselves. Yeah, it's okay to feel that way. Yeah, because, yeah, these guys certainly <laughs> weren't helping them feel that way. Like, oh, ugh, go make sacrifices. Well, too, it's talking more to the common people versus the, what we'd call the religious elite. Yeah, exactly. Anyone else? Yeah, Tom. One thing that all those groups share in common is like pride. 
Yes. Yep. Great point. I think that's that's the key point here is this uh, self-righteousness, pride. This these groups are sorry, someone's evening. These groups are just like we know what to do. We're going to take away. We're going to add. We're going to leave. We're going to fight. Um, but none of it is doing what the Bible says at the time. None of it's a clear understanding. Um, this poverty in spirit, it's also, some people looked into it, it's, it's similar to like a beggar who has no money, who's destitute at the end of their rope. Um, we're just nothing without Jesus. And this happens and it aids in our conversion, but it stays there in our sanctification. That's very important. I think, feel like there's people that want to do the set it and forget it thing. Um, one thing that, yeah, Mike. I think is a, an example that Jesus gave was the parable of the, fer, or the, yeah, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yes. That's a perfect example of importance yeah. as opposed to. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That's yeah. uh, not, the, not the best thinking. It's very prideful. Uh, Christmas is coming. Uh, I'm not trying to stir up Christmas music or anything. I know it's soon. But who here has seen It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> I love Jorge. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Um, it's, a, it's a great movie. That movie makes me cry. Um, like the whole time. But you know it would be terrible? It would be terrible if when they made that movie, if they're like, oh, that was good. We should make a sequel. Thank goodness we didn't have the franchises back then. Um, let's make a sequel where, and George Bailey, if they made a sequel where he's just gone right back to being upset, about his circumstances, yelling at his kids, forsaking his lovely wife, going right back to that bridge to jump in again. And this time God's like, yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> just, I, I showed you your life if you weren't that miracle. Just forget it, just forget it. Uh, that'd be devastating, but that's what we have to realize about being poor in spirit. Um, we need to consider it often. It needs to be an accepted understanding, not just like a little like, it's something I do sometimes. It's just the way it is. Just accept it for what it is. Um, not just a flash in the pan. Could somebody turn to 2 Corinthians 12.9? 2 Corinthians 12.9. So nobody here should be waking up in the morning and thinking, when it comes to my spirit, when it comes to my self-sufficiency, I'm doing pretty well. And I guess you could say that God helps me along the way. Um, that's, not, that's not it. Uh, we're weak. When we're weak, God is strong. That's a nice saying. That, that's, that's a fact that needs to be cherished. When we're weak, God is strong. This is echoed later by Paul after he's asking God to remove that metaphorical thorn from his side. He's pleading with God. He's like a beggar pleading with God, even in his sanctification. Could you please read 2 Corinthians 12, 9? And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amen. So we're poor in spirit when we come to know Christ, and we stay that way like the like Paul the Apostle. If Paul can stay that way, we can stay that way. Um, following the admission of our weakness and self-sufficiency, we can also admit that we go against God. Um, we aren't just nothing without him. We go against him with that nothing. And that's a huge denial in our culture today. But people will say, listen, I've heard about God. I've heard how perfect he is and how he wants to send me to hell. But I'm not hurting anybody. Um, America's individualistic. I'm, I'm leaving people alone. Live and let live. Um, but they don't understand that we've fallen so short of God's glory because of our disgusting sins that are an insult to his holiness, uh, that make him furious with anger, the kind of anger that killed his own son in our place. So this morning that verse 4 is talking about is a morning over our sin. Um, you don't want to take it as like, oh, so if I just like be sad, I'll be good. So all those, all those people who are really sad, they're on, they're on the, they, they know what they're doing. No, it's a, it's a mourning over our sin. And that also doesn't go away in sanctification. One day, when sin is dealt with and it's gone by King Jesus coming and 
taking care of that, um, there will be no need for mourning. There'll be no more tears in his kingdom. But in the kingdom now, as it is now, mourning is a, it's of great need now because sin is still here. And when you, so like when you go to a funeral, whether deceased was a believer or not, obviously if they weren't, it's much more sad. Um, it isn't a farewell party necessarily. I'm not trying to offend anybody. It's just like I heard Alistair Begg, he preached on mourning at funerals once. He talked about how it baffles him that people would celebrate someone's death. Death is a result of our sin. Every single one of us has polluted this world with sin. We can't blame it all on Adam and Eve. When you know a friend who loses a loved one, it isn't none of your business. It's definitely your business. It's my business. It's all of our business because we're all sinners. And there's no other feeling to have about our sin except a deep, righteous mourning for our sin. Um, And Jesus says here that in that mourning, we will be comforted. So he delights in our mourning over sin. It's because it shows the renewing of our minds that we understand how evil and anti-Christ our sin is. So he comforts us in our mourning. So that's where we go. That's how you come to accept these awful things in our world. Not by just leaving them. You accept them. These things like death and disease, pregnancies from rape, orphans, widows, these terrible things, whatever evil you may encounter. It's not this, hey, just, hey, just stay optimistic situation. It's not it at all. It's worth mourning over and being comforted by God. And when we mourn and are comforted, we're put in this fantastic like mildness of disposition. We become meek. We have a gentleness of spirit. We're humble and self-controlled inside of God's comfort. And it's hard, it's hard to go against the greatest commandments, loving God and loving others, when you are humbled every day by how poor in spirit you are and how sinful you've been and how you're, you're mourning over that. This is the perfect position for us to be in as citizens, as Christians. Not a place of unwilling submission to God. Okay, so we, we can get in this place of unwilling submission to God. We need to be in this place, like I was mentioning before, of understood submission to God. Not a place of, oh, well, God is good, so I need to pretend that I'm lesser and kind of go through these motions, acting humble, even though I kind of, I kind of deep down, I kind of still think kind of highly of myself. I, you know, I've got some things I'm able to do. It's a place of, oh, this is where I am. This is an, a truth that's been explained to me. This is where I am. This is where I belong. I'm spiritually bankrupt sinner that God has chosen to show mercy to. So like God is the great I am. He who always was, always is, always will be. That's who he is. Okay, I get that. Where am I? My position is here, below him. My position is in submission to his greatness and his holiness. That's where I am. No matter what I do, that's where I am. Um, And... It's an acceptance of the way things really are. It's, being, it's accepting the truth. That our self-assertiveness and our self-interest, it doesn't have any place in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus is our king, he's perfect, and he's victorious. And part of the reason he was victorious is because of his meekness and carrying out the Father's will even to the cross. I love the way that he, gosh, I love the way he dealt with it. I feel like we could learn a lot from it. When they're just like pushing him and they're accusing him and pushing him and he's just like, you have said so. You have said so. There's, there's, there's no point. Just let it go. I think we can uh, use that in our current time in America for sure. And those who submit to a victorious king, what do they get? They inherit the earth. When God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, as it alludes to in the Lord's prayer, the meek inherit the earth. And Christ showed us how to do that. That's something else, too. It's kind of like, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Davey. Or anybody else. It feels like the, the first two are not so much... These aren't really things that Christ was doing. I don't think Christ is like, I am poor in spirit and I'm mourning over my sin. Of course not. But 
we're now entering with like meek and onward. We're entering these things where we have clear examples from Christ that he was clearly doing these things as our king. He's not some king that's like, some king that's like, this is what we need to do. And he's not doing any of those things. <laughs> he is doing all of these things. But the first two, that's, yeah, I don't know. They're kind of like specific, I think, to us. They certainly have to do with him, of course, because they're how we are in comparison with him. But yeah. Exhibit these to the point that a perfect man can. He he was humble in heart. It's true, yeah. Which is sim- you know, pretty similar, very similar to Holy Spirit. And he did mourn. Yeah. He mourned through sin. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Looking too much inward. Yeah, outward, definitely poor in spirit and mourning for the people. Like when he when he wept. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Um. Well, the first two, they're more or less for running the synagogue and the secular government. Okay. The other two were sort of fringe groups. Okay. Thank you, Henry. Um, so you've emptied yourself. You're, you're meek, right? You've emptied yourself of your interests, your pride, your desires. Um, what do you do then? You've emptied yourself of these things. It's funny, it's like asking, what do I do now that God has shown me how to not eat garbage out of every dumpster in town? Um, you seek righteousness. You fill it with something good, right? You go get a burger or something. It's, it's the only thing that truly satisfied now. It satisfies us now. We have to be like Christ now. We've emptied ourselves. Um, we have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. Um, I have to love my neighbor as myself. I have to bear the fruit of the Spirit, be a part of the body like you are this morning. Thank you for doing that. Really, thank you for doing that. Many people are not. Carry out the Great Commission like we got to do Friday night in Blackstone. Love my brothers and sisters and disciple them like you're letting me do now, even though I'm clearly not qualified. But uh, whatever sin I was doing, I don't do that anymore. I do righteous things now. That's what I want to do. Um... Righteous things that benefit Christ's kingdom, not things that benefit the kingdom of Satan, of this confused and dark world. Because that's what we were doing. We were fighting for the other side. And now we're not. And so we should stop. (laughs) We should stop aiding them on the front lines. Like, hey, take this weapon, shoot me. (laughs) Just no, like, fight for his side with the the power of love. No, honestly, like the love, the unconditional, sacrificial love of Christ, fight. Um, the thing they sing about, we actually have. Um, and now it's not, it's, it's a thirst, right? It's a hunger to do those things, to be more like Christ every day. And in, in Christ, I'm finally satisfied. I've found something that uh, isn't, it doesn't just please for an instant or just please for a time. Or it, it's something that doesn't please, but the next time it kind of loses so you've got to get more, and it loses, you know, into drugs. Um, the drugs of our world, in whatever form of sin it is, um, that lead to death and destruction. No real good ending for any of those things. It's not like that. It's, it's a consistent blessing. These blessings in these Beatitudes, they're consistent. They're, they're for all time. I think we, ugh, like knowing Jesus and being more like him, these just keep happening. We're just not used to that. We're used to like, I get a coffee and it gets cold. Like it's, it's, that's not the way God is. God is always was, always, he's, he's perfectly consistent. And it's just gonna keep coming to us. Could somebody please turn to Proverbs 14.21? Proverbs 14.21. Somebody I guess means everybody. So we all know that we're sinners, although because of Christ's change in our lives and making us temples of the Holy Spirit, we no longer practice sin like 1 John talks about. But we can still revert to our old ways from time to time. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing in verse 7, amongst other things. But one of the things we're seeing in verse 7, when we get righteousness, I feel like this happens a lot, especially in Midwestern America. We can get righteousness and we can become satisfied with righteousness And then we can start to think a little highly of ourselves. We can start to forget that we're poor in spirit. We can start to forget to be mournful over our our sin. We can forget our meek position before God. And when others sin against us or find themselves 
Less fortunate, we can think, and I've heard this kind of thing out of my own mouth very many times growing up, we can think or we can say, well, maybe they should have made better choices like I did. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking how, like, as a Christian, you can come to love. You, you owe, there's been enough history of obedience in your life to know, like, God has a really good design. So, but then you can easily start falling into the trap of, how could they be so stupid? <laughs> when it's like, right. except for the grace of God, there you go, I, it's kind of like this, I know that that's like, that's a stupid thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, how can anybody do that? Like, Even with the grace of God, there you go, I. Yeah, yeah. You're making me think of like, <laughs> if you're standing next to a doctor or something, and they're like telling everything the patient needs to know, and you're not a doctor, you're like, yeah. Duh. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? You don't know these things. I'm the doctor. I'm the physician. Calm down. Take that pride down, please. Um, uh, we can revert to that. Um, we can, uh, when people sin against us, we can be like the Pharisee that was praying, like Mike mentioned. The Pharisee is like, I'm just glad I'm not like all these other people. It's not good. Somebody please read Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. So having and practicing righteousness, um, it isn't to climb some kind of unspoken ladder toward being more Christ-like than others, and you're like comparing with other people. It, it puts you in a position. It puts you in a position to treat others the way that Jesus treated you, to have mercy, to have compassion and sacrificial love for others. It's like, here's the source, it comes to me, I give it out. Um, not, here's the source, it comes to me, hey, feel pretty good. <laughs> Start, oh, oh, you want some? I'm gonna withhold, I'm gonna withhold and be a jerk to you. No, it's, come on, that's not, that's not what God does. It's not what he did to us. Um, uh, these are the th- kind of things, like loving people, having compassion, being sacrificially loving. These are the things that we can't do if we aren't seeking righteousness. Uh, The verse right after that says, Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. That steadfast love and faithfulness is to be shared. It's not to be squandered for your own pride. That really is a key point, Tom. That pride is just, uh, that is the antithetical push against all of this. Um, And when we think self-righteously, we go astray and we lack mercy. We forget. We become like that, uh, the guy who was forgiven and then the other guy doesn't owe him very much money. He's a total jerk. (laughs) Sorry. My paraphrases of parables are awful. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, And righteousness. So righteousness intake. That also helps a person to stay pure in heart. Can somebody turn to Matthew 15? 18 through 19. Matthew 15, 18 through 19. So God, he's always been more concerned with our inward character than our outward conduct, because that's where the problem lies. God is concerned about our hearts, and he says that those who have a pure heart will see him. They will not just taste righteousness now, but will be in his presence in the end. Uh, Could somebody read those verses, please? 18 and 19. You can, you can see why this is his concern. This is, he knows, this is what's inside of there. This is the problem. Um, in James 4, 8, it also says about the pure heart, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we must draw near to God to have pure hearts and we must have pure hearts to see God, which makes a ton of sense. And I think it applies in both seeing God in our glorification in the end, and it also applies now in our sanctification. A pure heart that desires what is true, honorable, like Philippians says, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, is more able to see what God is doing in our world. 
And seeing that now makes a believer, makes us greatly encouraged and in awe. So that's something we need to forget not to forsake. Um, it can be hard to pursue righteousness sometimes. It's a narrow road. It's, it's against the wide road that leads to destruction. But in doing that, I, I know I've, I've heard a lot of people say, like, I just, I'm, I'm struggling with just knowing God, I feel like. I'm struggling with just seeing what he's doing in my life. Don't, like, that's not the time to say, oh, I don't know what's going on, so I'm just going to go back to what I was doing because I'm not I'm not getting my instant mashed potatoes result here. So I'm just, <laughs> just going to go. No, it's stay where you are. Stay in pure, stay righteous, stay where you are. Um, it makes me think of like people who are waiting to get married. And it's taken so long. And they get to this point with just like, I just, <laughs> I am physically feeling, Ugh, I want to have that uh, with my wife or my husband. They start to get to this point. Well, maybe I should just maybe it's just not maybe I should just maybe I've waited long enough You have not waited long enough wait stay patient wait for Jesus to come back for his bride Um, Wait 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 stay in purity So and when you do that you can see him working because you're so your mind isn't so clouded with all this garbage You can see him do things and then you can be a great encourager here at Center. You can be a great encourager saying like, you know what I saw the other day? I saw what he did? And that's really hard to do when you're constantly just intaking the world's narrative and the world's perspective and the sin and, oh, my sin is so great. I'm going to be prideful about it and sad. No, just stay pure. Think about what Philippians talks about. What's honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Think about Christ. And then in verse 9, this is an interesting one because... We're called to be peacemakers. And by this, it should be obvious that we're God's children if we're acting like peacemakers. He's saying, if you're being a peacemaker, then it's very clear that you're my child. Um, or we're, it says we're sons or daughters of God. But similarly, like with mercy, it comes here, I give it. It comes here, I give it. I don't squander it. Um, but... That's a tough calling right now, I feel like. I wanted to ask you guys, how do, how do you guys think we're supposed to be peacemakers? Like, if a new believer asked you, how are you Christians supposed to be peacemakers right now in this divided country? Like, I know you're supposed to be peacemakers. Ooh, How are you supposed to do that right now? What would you say to them, do you think? Ambassadors of reconciliation. I think the, the chief way that we are peacemakers is by showing how to have peace with God. Yes. So like, okay, there's a million things to distract you right now in the world. But got it. But let me show you <laughs> where you can have peace with God that is independent of all these other things going on right now. Yeah, exactly. I, I think so many people right now, including people who are very close to me in my life, um, they're dealing with like, this person thinks this and that frustrates me. This person is, I don't even want to talk about that person. And then this person, it's like, they got all these little fractures and all these little relationships. Um, and they just feast on them and they just, ugh, and they just relish in them and they want to slander in them and get upset. And then, and then they, it's almost like they start to like it. They almost start to like being upset. Like, ugh, it's so bad. I, ugh. And it's, but a lot of times you look at it and you're wanting to make a peace with this group or that group. Yeah. But as a collateral damage or whatever you want to call it, you sort of become an enemy of somebody else because right. they liked you when you didn't like that. That's a great if point. If you don't like that anymore, man, you're my enemy yeah. again. I try to make peace over here and now <laughs> all these people are upset at me. So, yeah, it's really a difficult thing to be called you might make peace in one and make enemies in the other yeah i think i mean this is the same thing with like marriage like sometimes people like what's going on with marriage i don't get it should we do it and they're they're like forgetting where it came from marriage came from god it didn't we didn't establish it it came from god it's the same thing with peace we didn't just like find it we weren't just wandering around oh we should be nice to each other it it came from a source Uh, it came from the prince of peace and if you look in society Society has all of a sudden become so offended 
at anything you do. Mm -hmm. In other words, you say this, somebody's offended. Yeah. And witnessing, too, like evangelizing, that could be offensive, too. And I, th I think we're coming to a time, too, where everybody's so offended. It's like, okay, <laughs> maybe I should be less afraid <laughs> to share the gospel at this point. It feels like anything I say is offensive anyway. Um, why not offend them for something that's actually going to change their life <laughs> instead of trying to win some conversation about health care? Um, but, <laughs> like... What are you saying? I'm going to get this way off track, but it's, it's just an interesting <laughs> comment of what you guys are talking about. But I think what should embolden us to share the gospel. So I, I heard somebody respond to Biden's victory speech. Like, I'm not getting political. Oh, Davey, you're no, no, naming no, no. names. I heard somebody respond to his. If you notice in his speech, he said, he said, God bless America. God let, uh, protect our troops. Mm -hmm. And he, he referred to God as he. And somebody jokingly said, like, how dare he refer to God as a masculine pronoun? <laughs> how can anybody possibly want to follow this guy as president? Oh, but it just shows, like, <laughs> so quickly. Shows, you're going to, like you said, you're going to offend people no matter what you do now. So you might as well. Might as well, man. Might as well. That's as political as I'm going to get. <laughs> and with that, we will move into the inevitable the persecution, which we're probably already facing a little bit. But thank you for all those comments. Um, so, like, we, we faced this on Friday night. We were talking to some people. They started to get very heated, started to not necessarily attack us, attack, like, you know, you're a jerk, but they were saying mean things to us. Um, they were just being all, all around not kind, and we were being kind back. Praise God for that. Praise, praise Christ for doing that in us. Um, and in sharing the gospel with others, in sharing his kingdom and carrying out these beatitudes, it's inevitable that we'll be persecuted. Could somebody look up uh, Luke 12, 51 through 53? Luke 12, 51 through 53. So people are looking for peace on earth. Um, how many peace treaties have we have that were immediately broken a year or two later? But they're looking for peace on earth but they won't find that until sin is gone. They don't really get that. And regardless, regardless of that, they see what we're teaching and what we're sharing, they see us as convicting, they see us as judgmental, they see us as arrogant. And Jesus kind of talked about the effect of his teaching in Luke 12, 51 through 53. Can someone read that, please? Mm -hmm. Always lead them. One second, she's reading. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Yeah, I don't know if that's detailed enough for you, but it's going to be some division. Uh, you have to remember, um, sin is here. Sin is, it's dark, it's sinful here. Jesus Christ is the only threat and the ultimate ending of what's going on in this world. And putting yourself in, this posi in their position, how would you feel if you had accepted that your sin was fine? Being in the darkness and is totally fine. Um, stumbling through life, that's just life. We don't know what we're doing. It's, ah, it's crazy, we don't know. Um, and then we die and nothing happens. Uh, and then somebody shines a light on you. They shine this bright light of kindness and loving righteousness of Christ. It's like poking a bear. It's like, like poking a beehive. But Christ promises, again, these are blessings. Christ promises deep, unfathomable happiness for those who are persecuted for his sake. Persecuted for righteousness, which only comes from Jesus Christ. If you look at the Beatitudes as a progression from being poor in spirit all the way to being persecuted, if you look at it as a progression, as well as a list of ways to uh, remember how to live in the kingdom, this last blessing is inevitable. It should be inevitable. Um, it's a privilege to be ridiculed and hurt by others for the sake of the truth. And if you study martyrs, if you haven't read the Fox Book of Martyrs is a good one. 
Um, the outcome is always the same. When a Christian is martyred, it's like a nuclear bomb of belief or like a rapid spreading of faithful fire in the communities around them. God uses it to save the souls of people around that martyr. So when you're physically killed, whether you're physically killed for Christ or you just face the daily grind that we're facing of persecution for standing up for Christ and sharing with Christ, um, God is using it in ways that you can't fathom. He's using it in ways you can't imagine. You know that it's being used for his glory and for the gospel, but how? It can be confusing, but we have to keep going. We have to endure, which the Bible talks about a lot. Enduring until the end, not setting it and forgetting it, enduring till the end. So he tells us not to despair. He says in uh, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. (laughs) I love the way he is. Uh, Rejoice and be glad to count yourself uh, as just as just as important as uh, the persecuted prophets who were before you. I think that's a pretty amazing feeling that Christ has kind of given us too in being uh, saved by him and made pure. If we do this, if we, if we follow these and we obey him, he's just as pleased with us as Isaiah or Moses, John the Baptist. That's, that's a crazy feeling to me. And I definitely want to seek that out. Um, let's finish... Our time is gone. Let's finish with reading a few passages. Could somebody look up Romans 12.1? And somebody else, oh, it's a little switch. Somebody else look up Galatians 2.20, unless you've got it on your heart and you just want to say it. Let's end the class with some key scriptures about where we are now and uh, the goal of being persecuted. And I hope that these passages encourage you in following these beatitudes, even to the point of that persecution. But just remember that each is a blessing of true inner happiness that Jesus himself felt and thrived on. And every one of these Beatitudes, it's these systems are different now, but they're here now. And this way of living, this, this uh, progression, this list, this, this thing that Christ has given us, like the kingdom's here, let me show you how. It will always be antithetical. And inside of that ant- being antithetical, there's great blessing coming with it. He didn't just say, do this, good luck. <laughs> he has blessings for every single one of them because we're drawing nearer to Christ and coming more closer and closer to his presence. Um, yeah, somebody please read Romans 12.1. Amen. Living sacrifice. That can be easy to forget. I'll read a little bit from 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, This is Paul describing what he'd been through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, the betrayal, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then later he talks about being up with God, with Christ, and asking, uh, asking for him to remove the thorn. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, like we read earlier. And then he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. He is content. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then could somebody read Galatians 2.20? Amen. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And remember, when Christ sat down to talk to the disciples, he was fully man, he was fully God. 
He was not bound by time. You'll hear me talk about this a lot because I think it's really important. When he sat down, he was thinking of those disciples. He was thinking of that crowd. I think you would probably agree he knew every person's name in that crowd. When he was sitting down to give this sermon to talk about these Beatitudes, he was thinking of your name. He was picturing your beautiful, created, image-bearer face when he was thinking of these Beatitudes. Do not separate yourself too far from this ancient word. This ancient word is ever true. And I want to encourage you as we go through the next 16 weeks to take a, take a look together, if you can, on the Sermon on the Mount. Pray it, if you must. But remember that this is, uh, this is a gift specifically for you. He wants you in his kingdom, and you're in his kingdom, and he's telling you, this is how you relish in my kingdom. It's a good kingdom, especially with now, with how broken the earthly kingdom seems to be around us. This is a great time to relish in the true kingdom that we're in and to show that kingdom to other people by living, to show them kingdom living of Jesus. Man, that's what we need to be doing that now. People are so confused. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Mm -hmm.